Welcome to MPsych, a podcast created by Vituity, a physician-owned and led partnership where we discuss critical topics within the emerging field of emergency psychiatry. Today, we're talking about non-psychiatric psychiatric emergencies, anchoring bias, and a case series on autoimmune encephalitis. Today, my guest is Dr. Mark Ard. He did his medical school and residency at Loma Linda University, then went off to do a fellowship in consultation liaison psychiatry at USC. He currently is serving as the emergency psychiatry director and the consult service director at Loma Linda University Health. Thanks for coming, Mark. Ah, thank you for having me. Now, today we're going to talk about a number of things, but the first thing I wanted to say is just for some people who may not be familiar, briefly, what is a C&L psychiatrist? Yeah, I think people might be more familiar with the previous term, psychosomatics. Uh, recently had a name change to CL Psychiatry. It's a post-residency fellowship that you can do focusing on care of patients with comorbid psychiatric and general medical conditions. Um, I think of the mix of medical presentations or complications of psych conditions and psych presentations of medical conditions and then the interplay of those two. So when mental health and medicine overlap in the hospital setting, um, helping liaison between difficult cases, um, most people that go into CL psychiatry, uh, that, that ends up being where they are in the hospital. Right. And so... Uh, as a general psychiatrist and addiction psychiatrist, a lot of times people like me will use someone like you to say, um, you know, this is a more complicated kind of case involving uh, medicine or we're not sure yet. And so we would get recommendations uh, from someone who's done their fellowship or someone who has um, spent a number of years more so on the medical uh, center side. Well, it's interesting, right? Because emergency psychiatry, I, I expect in the next couple of years will be uh, a fellowship of psychiatry accreditation at some point. So I think a lot of people that go into psychosomatics or CL psychiatry have some interest in, in that overlap, but not direct training in emergency psychiatry. But obviously a lot of the cases that come through the emergency room, there's not a lot of clarity and it helps to have that medical perspective on your mind. Um, for, for me personally, it's been helpful to work kind of in both settings, in the emergency room, but then also once they're admitted um, to a medical or neurologic service, I still see them there and I get to kind of see the the full timeline of their hospital course. Yes, and we've done a couple of episodes on things related to, uh, you know, accepting patients from an emergency room into inpatient psychiatry. Uh, you know, my own hospital uh, has an open position uh, for an unaccredited fellowship in emergency psychiatry. So we're working on that. Of course, that is the focus of this podcast. And so we are seeing that develop and we're seeing more best practices come out of people who are focused on it. But we have you today, and we have a, a little case series on autoimmune encephalitis, uh, which, you know, you may have more comments about, you know, what that is in a moment. But what I wanted to start with was sometimes some of the problems of medicine or even sometimes in the emergency department, trying to uh, evaluate a patient medically uh, first, and their presentation, you know, quote unquote, looks like psych. And it can get confusing, especially if the presentation is not what the psychiatrist typically sees. And so we wanted to talk about that idea of pattern recognition and bias. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, go back to this uh, example that I, I might butcher a little bit, but the idea is there uh, from chess. So they take uh, amateur and grandmaster chess players 
and they give them a, a board set up and they ask them to memorize the board. Uh, and then they take all the pieces off and they have to, you know, set back up the board from memory. Um, so it's, sh- you know, shouldn't be surprising that the amateurs struggle to do as well as the grandmaster chess players, except when the positions are randomized, they don't come from real games. They're not possible. There's like multiple queens on the board, multiple kings on the board, or, you know, pawns and uh, files that they can't be on, et cetera. The grandmasters are just as good as the amateurs. And and I remember reading that for the first time uh, in, in early medical school and kind of getting this idea that uh, the knowledge base you have is really built around the expertise that you have. And that is also where the biases come from, right? And in that example, the, the ability to memorize a chess position really depends on your experience with chess positions like that. If you take away that as a possibility, you're no better than average. Um, and, it, and, and I think where people have, have heard this idea a little bit more is this, the idea of system one and system two thinking, um, Kahneman and Tversky and uh, what is the the book Thinking Fast and Slow I think I, it was wonderful to read in medical education and the idea is that you have kind of I'll, you know go through it quickly that you have these two systems system one is this fast very heuristic system um, that does not take a lot of processing power and it's built along the lines of the experience you have and the, the gut feeling I think it's the easiest way to say that and the system two thinking is the slow system, the system where you use um, deliberation and reflection. And I think about that as, you know, building a differential diagnosis. Um, and we have these these two pathways. The problem is they both are susceptible to bias in, in different ways. And then we also have, you know, the statistics of medicine. We, we learn about epidemiology and all of these, uh, you know, odds ratios and likelihood ratios and and a phrase that people might be familiar with, but you definitely do it every day is this, this Bayesian thinking that you start with, you know, um, an idea of what might be going on. But then as more information is added to that, you're updating your information. And the emergency room is a great setting because obviously people come in with a presenting problem with limited information. And then as you gather more information, your, your probabilities are updated, right? If somebody comes in um, you know, with one set of symptoms and you do additional tests and you, you find new results, you should update your diagnoses. And yet, I think that differs a little bit from the way that we're taught, right? We're, we're taught in these, these illness scripts. We're taught um, this, these textbook diagnoses. I always like to think you have to build good multiple choice questions, so you're kind of taught these idealized cases, right? So that so that you can have like answer A is the right answer and then B through E is close but but not good enough. And the stem of a question that we're all taught with is this idealized case that helps you pick A and not the rest of it. And the problem is reality isn't isn't quite like that, right? You're you're not always given all the information to make a diagnosis. Um, real cases in front of you don't always present like those textbook cases. It's nice to know those. Those are the good illness scripts to start with. But in real life, it's more complicated. And so a lot of the biases that we bring into the the diagnosis and workup and, and, and treatment process are they're impacted by by those biases that, that we come in with. Right. Yeah, a lot of the way we're taught reinforces that pathognomonic script, right? And we see that. It's the way we get through tests. It's also the way our emergency department providers and nursing staff, very, you know, they're quite good at going through a 
quite, you know, a number of options very quickly in order to see if a patient is sick enough to, you know, stay versus go. Um, however, uh, when, uh, you know, one of the articles that we'll have linked shows pretty clearly that when there's time constraints, money constraints, uh, when there's cognitive load, the more stressful a situation is, the more likely we are to resort to those anchors and not be open to adjustment uh, appropriately as additional information comes in or even being open to that information at all. Well, and I think our, our diagnostic structure is going to add to that difficulty, right? You know, with, with the DSM, you take something even just like major depressive disorder, it's a number of symptoms of a full set of symptoms, right? You have to meet a certain threshold. And so when you pick that threshold, you could do four or six, but we chose five of those symptoms. Why those specific symptoms? Why that time frame? But you can imagine that there is a kind of a paradigmatic case of depression or a more common case of depression. Then you can also imagine a atypical combination of those. The DSM does not make clear what the most common combination of symptoms are. There are studies that do that. Um, but when you think of depression, on one hand, it's a five of nine criteria for two or more weeks. On the other hand, when I say depression, everybody kind of has that model in their mind. And, and yet we're taught the latter, but we're expected to diagnose on the former, right? We're expected to diagnose based off of these, these syndromes. So now let's talk about some specific biases. Yeah, I made a, I made a list that I, I think is worth reflecting on, right? Um, there's this uh, availability, I, well, kind of together, this availability, vividness, recency, bias, they, they kind of go together. It's that if something can be recalled, it must be important, right? Or at least more important than some of the alternatives because you were able to recall it. Um, and if something can be richly imagined or if you can fill in the narrative gaps missing in the, the objective information that you have, it must be important. Uh, and yet, and I think in, in psychiatry, again, more than a lot of other medical specialties, the underlying cause can be silent or benign or nonspecific, right? I think from a consultation liaison standpoint, I get called in for anxiety and I'll, I'll see you know, I'll walk in the room and a patient's heart rate is elevated and I see a bag of, you know, IV steroids hanging and the patients will tell me that they're anxious and they will identify all the things that are making them anxious. But I know that they just started steroids a few hours ago. And if the steroids weren't part of the equation, they wouldn't be identifying, you know, benign things that are now making them anxious. But but the narrative that they're building around it is that availability. That's what they're telling you. So, right. so that must be, you know, what's going on. And I think that that is a bias. Um, and then on top of it, you get kind of the, the two big ones in the emergency room that I think about are this anchoring and premature bias. And I know we're going to unpack those a little bit, but just generally, right? So, so anchoring bias, you have this tendency to focus on one part of the case and then anchor to that as a diagnosis to the detriment of all the other presenting information. I think about it like trying to fit a square peg in a circle hallway. You, you, you start with what you think is going on and then everything else kind of fits that narrative uh, instead of updating as you go um, and, and maybe reconsidering your, your, your diagnosis. And then with that anchoring, there's this tendency to close prematurely to say, okay, I have enough information. I'm going to close the diagnostic process. I'm going to exclude relevant information. Um, I think about that more as a, a process issue. You've, you've 
cut off the process of, of curiosity in an evolving case and you've prematurely closed. Um, but the two go go hand in hand. And again, in the emergency room, you're, you're often time crunched, overwhelmed. There's, there's pending work to do. And the tendency is to get stuck on the first thing you have and then close when you feel like you've gathered enough information. And yet things evolve, right? New imaging, new lab work family, friends, or patients update you with new information. And there's a tendency not to go back and revise your original diagnosis. Right. And and it, it's so interesting because at first, you know, when we're doing one of these biases, we, anchoring, which we all do at, you know, at times, it appears irrational, like the opposite of what we're trying to do in evidence-based medicine and how most of us were educated um, prior to and, and during medical school. But the reality is, when it's been examined, it, it actually looks that it's it is a resource rational uh, process. Uh, could you talk about that? Well, you know our, our diagnoses are are difficult because they are sets of symptoms that that map onto uh, these these syndromes that we have described. And so there's not a lot of objective tests to them. so so it is easy or maybe more easy than other specialties to fill in gaps and convince yourself of a psychiatric diagnosis, obviously, that sets you up for this premature closure. Um, and yet, it, it is somewhat reasonable because, again, if, if our diagnoses don't have objective blood markers, brain markers, are you going to test for everything? Can, can you reasonably exclude all the, the neurologic or medical disorders that could cause this set of symptoms? Or at some point, are you going to say, well, I don't think it's necessary to do all of these tests when this case presents this way? Um, and part of this involves the the narrative leading up to the diagnosis, right? I mentioned the DSM as a you know a, a set of criteria, but we also have kind of the the prodromal or the classic time course of a disorder. So even again, going back to major depressive disorder, it's two weeks, but obviously. Um, we have in our minds a picture of depression that has a lot of antecedents to it. So if you're given that information, you don't necessarily need to do all of those tests um, if it fits kind of the expected narrative. And, and therefore, it does make sense to close early and, and avoid all the unnecessary harm, the possibility of finding, you know, you do enough imaging, you'll find an incidentaloma, and then you're like, what do I do with that? Um, so there is a somewhat of a value to that. And we have a lot of pressure to do that, uh, both for cost cutting, for being able to see more patients in less time. And so it's it's not always internal. Sometimes it's external pressures forcing us into that uh, into that mold. Well, and 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 think about you know the patients that get prematurely closed, right? They they get labeled with a psychiatric diagnosis, so it they lack access right, for future monitoring or diagnoses, right? Especially if you get sent to a psychiatric hospital. A lot of times freestanding psychiatric hospitals don't have access to, you know, medicine consultants. You're, you're not going to get a lumbar puncture once you get taken to a psychiatric hospital. There's a stigmatization that, oh, now it's a psych explanation. Um, obviously, the the, inter, the psychiatric interventions, if applied to somebody with a non-psychiatric disorder, can cause harm, right? There's harm both in those interventions and the delay of appropriate care. I do worry about disposition, especially in some of our, our geriatric patients that get labeled with psychiatric diagnoses when really what we're dealing with is a slow cognitive decline. And now there's, you know, memory care facilities that won't take them because there's this, this mark on their, um, on their chart that they were admitted to a psychiatric hospital. And then, 
you know, and, and, and you're on the inpatient ward as, as well. There's a limited number of beds. There's always a bed shortage. So there's a misallocation of scarce resources when you prematurely label something as a psychiatric disorder, transfer them to a psychiatric hospital, obviously do all the negative things that we just say, said, while that bed is full and there's somebody in an acute manic episode of bipolar disorder waiting to come in. And sometimes those people are discharged early because we couldn't find a bed in time. And so that's some of the harms that are done from the system. So, you know, we all do this. You know, one step I know one of the articles we'll have linked shows a nice little chart which talks about one way around it is whenever your pattern is questioned, switch into a slower, more analytical process. If another specialist is giving you feedback that it doesn't fit the pattern they're used to seeing, we should probably open up and listen. But how would you advise us, uh, ourselves, and in working with our peers to overcome these biases? Yeah, I think the first thing to do is just recognize that system one thinking is is okay, right? That that's kind of the point of a lot of training and, and experience is, to, and that's the fast pattern that, that fast pa- pattern recognition to build up that skill set. So when you see somebody that fits a narrative explanation, you can move quickly to the next step in the emergency room. That might be you know stabilization and arranging appropriate disposition. In, in the back of your mind, it's worth holding on to alternative explanations. But if this does fit a pattern well, you don't necessarily need to do an extended workup. And that's, you know, that, that's the skill set that you develop over time. I, I I train residents and and it is interesting to hear their thought process and all the tests that they would like to do because they really don't have a system one built yet. We're trying to give them and that. And we're trying to give them that. Yeah. We're trying to show them those things. And, and I, I think what you need to bring into it is the ability to update, right? We said, so if you if you make a system one choice, a quick determination, but new information comes in, or like you said, another specialist says, well, this is this is odd. Update, right? It, it's totally appropriate to switch to the other thinking process um, and go through inquiry, the, the Socratic method of reflecting on uh, what you're doing, talking with, with your colleagues um, and, and not being condescending to them, recognizing that you have a domain of of skill and so do they. Um, and also just in the emergency room setting, recognizing that when your your cognitive load is high, you're overwhelmed, you're trying to remember 10 different cases, you haven't had a chance to sit down and chart yet. There is this resistance to taking alternative uh, viewpoints and sometimes we need to just slow down. Uh, I think as a psychiatrist, we come in with uh, some extra training that, that, that works here too, is just having empathy for them you know, the emergency physicians, neurologists, internal medicine, having empathy and a little commiseration, right? We're in the trenches with them too. But ultimately, um, it's it's compassion both towards the the provider, the, the emergency internal medicine neurologist, and also the patient, right? Um, our goal is to help the patient do well. Um, and then I, I think kind of on the tail end of that, when all everything dies down, to reflect and have a, a non-judgmental updating to go back to the case. You know, if in, in electronic medical records, you can keep track of patients quite well. Hold on to a watch list and like keep an eye on them. If they're still within the system or, you know, your inter- interoperability and they go to another hospital, check on them um, because you can update your biases or, or your thinking process if you know what actually happened to them. And then you can go back to your emergency medicine colleagues, neurologists, and say, hey, remember that patient? This is what actually ended up happening to them. 
does that change how we would have approached it? So the reflection, uh, you know, a non-judgmental reflection can be really helpful, almost like a like a informal M M&M. and M. That's a great idea. Now, when it comes to you know medical presentations, emergency department presentations, what are some of the common conditions that might be mistaken as psychiatric only presentations? I think we need to put on the list drug intoxication and withdrawal. So I think that does fall under our umbrella. Anyways. I see that one yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I would say an umbrella would also be anything new. And, and it, it's a reminder that most psychiatric disorders seen in an emergency room or the, the serious mental illnesses, right? Schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, severe, significant depression, unstable personality disorders, the extremes of other disorders like... Um, poorly managed or poorly treated OCD, PTSD, et cetera. Those are chronic conditions. So the the prevalence far outpaces the incidence. And that's kind of the, the thought that I have. If I'm if if somebody's trying to convince me this is the first fill in the blank, I'm very skeptical. Some it, for schizophrenia, there's only one first break. Everything after that has a history. Um, so anytime anything is new, I'm slowing all the way down in that system two thought process. I'm calling as many people as I can. Um, you know, if they're very confused or they come in unnamed, I'm searching them on Facebook. I, I will do anything I can to find any information on them to, to fill in because new onsets scare me. Delirium, right? Uh, it, it is the great imitator in CL psychiatry. Many significant medical issues have this uh, psychiatric manifestation, but they, they also have cognitive dysfunction. Um, so anytime somebody comes in confused, and especially if that's far off their baseline, as you know, if I can find some information that this is way different than where they were cognitively, that's a red flag. And then anytime that there is these medical signs or symptoms, like the presentation might be anxious, depressed, psychotic, et cetera, but they're, they're jaundice. They're complaining of significant headaches, right? They have this periodic abdominal pain. There's these medical things that don't quite fit with that psychiatric presentation. Those are worth just slowing down and thinking about, could this be a, a medical cause of those psychiatric symptoms? And then also I would add when the time frame is so different than the typical course. So uh, something like a rapidly progressing dementia, I'll never forget a case, you know, when, when I was early in training of someone who was normal uh, for her age at Thanksgiving and was severely uh, demented by Valentine's Day. And that turned it out to be a Kretzfeld-Yakov, which was initially called a psych presentation when she had no history other than some mild to moderate depression. Well, and it's going to be difficult because, you know, the, the patient in front of you sensibly has hopefully one disorder that explains this presentation. The problem is you don't know that yet, right? So there's there's a, a probability still in the air and you have to make decisions based off of that probability. The example I like to give to residents uh, a lot of times is if, you know, if somebody came in with chest pain and that chest pain was, you know, crushing chest pain, radiating down the left arm, up the jaw, um, but they really didn't have any risk factors um, for cardiovascular disease. And they also had a big work thing coming up, right? They, they, they told you they're anxious about this work thing. You would say, well, you know, this could be anxiety. This could be panic. 
but we should check you out, right? We'll do an EKG, we'll do troponins, we'll, we'll consider the, the chest pain workup. And they do it and it all comes back negative. What you shouldn't take away from that is, oh, next time somebody has chest pain and anxiety, it's just anxiety, right? Because with the information that you had, you didn't have enough to differentiate between the two. So doing the workup was totally appropriate, even though it came back as a psychiatric issue. The next time you should treat it the same way, right? That that you should have some workup based off of how likely or unlikely something is um, and, and go from there. Right, because the harms can be pretty significant for uh, the patient um, when we call something that has a an underlying medical um, course that is presenting with psychiatric symptoms and that delays treatment or gives them a diagnosis that was absolutely inaccurate and then that further delays treatment. And that's probably some of the co- potential consequences of some of the cases you've had. Yeah, yeah. So tell us some of the cases that you've seen in the past two years. Well, I know we're going to go into a little more detail on some of these autoimmune encephalitis. I think that's the plural. Um, but it, it is worth just thinking in the emergency room. So the vast majority of things that I'm consulted on that end up not being psych, I, I, there's this time of diagnostic uncertainty, right? The team knows that something's wrong. They, you know, they're admitted to medicine, they're taking them, but I get consulted and brought in. And it, it usually falls into a a few categories. I, I like to call it the run-of-the-mill delirium versus the unicorn delirium. Right? If somebody's just confused and agitated, I tend to not get called. If they're seeing unicorns, I might get called for that. If if it's very bizarre presentation, I'll get brought in. If there's this this um, underlying psychiatric disorder, you know, is that explain what what I'm looking at? Um, is there a psychiatric issue that's complicating my ability to care for them medically? Right. So somebody who has, you know. Um, Schizophrenia might have difficulty participating in their medical surgical care. I'll come in for that. Um, but but the conflict for medical causes of psychiatric issues, I think, falls into two big categories. The, the first one is just this, surely that wouldn't cause this group, right? Surely that medical condition wouldn't cause this I can't presentation. believe that it would cause this, yeah, therefore yeah. it probably doesn't. Right, right. So, so the classic one that we see is right, urinary tract infection. You see somebody who is floridly psychotic and we say, okay, that UA shows a urinary tract infection and, and the argument is, well, that wouldn't cause this level of psychosis. Yeah, right. Especially if there's some risk factors. Um, I think recently we we saw a good case of hypertensive emergency, just, you know, it's like a blood pressure of 220 over 120 floridly psychotic, got his blood pressure under control, and the next day was completely fine. Um, but because he had a history of depression and anxiety, the argument was, well, this must be progression of depression and anxiety and discounting the fact that his blood pressure is through the roof. Um, we see super, supra therapeutic electrolytes, right? Um, uh, if they're on drugs for chemotherapy agents or anti-rejection medications, those can be too high or too low, present to psychiatric issues. Um, sometimes there, there's some benign things that they're, they're distressing, but they're known disorders. It just seems so odd. We saw a blind patient recently that had Charles Bonnet syndrome. He was, he was hallucinating. It was not really that disturbing, um, but we were consulted because it, it seemed odd that he was hallucinating, but that is a known you know, syndrome. And then the other category, the, the one that we're going to go into here, right, is the psychiatric manifestation is the only or prominent presenting symptom. And the classic set of disorders is autoimmune disorders in general 
can come in as the only presenting symptom is a psychiatric manifestation. And obviously, you know, uh, autoimmune encephalitis, and I'll, I'll use that as kind of the, the broad term, but... It's like an umbrella term yeah, for I mean, several different syndromes now, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them, and I am in no way an expert on all of them. I will say that NMDA encephalitis... Um, has this mood psychosis component that will often bring psychiatrists in early. Um, and so a, a little more familiar with that and, and the case series that, that we're presenting um, all focuses on those. But autoimmune encephalitis, right? It can mimic psychiatric disorders and yet you need to have this high index of suspicion Right, because it can progress. It can progress to seizures, autonomic instability. Um, there's delays in diagnosis and care. It can cause harm. And the antipsychotics, which people might think mistakenly it's psychiatric, let's give more antipsychotics. And what happens? Right, so they can um, have significant side effects that you actually wouldn't expect in the treatment of something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. The classic one we think of with NMDA encephalitis is this strong reaction to first-generation antipsychotics. Um, one of the cases here was a, a young girl that was very psychotic, um, had to be restrained and was getting um, haloperidol. She was pregnant, so haloperidol was kind of the antipsychotic of choice. The problem was it caused rhabdomyolysis and it, it worsened her, her catatonia to be giving shots of first-generation antipsychotics. Um, and, and it's specific to this this group of disorders, the, the encephalitis can respond strongly to first-generation antipsychotics. And then delayed her care, right, for, for treatment that does work. Right, right. Because um, the appropriate treatment um, ended up being lorazepam, giving her, her medications for her agitated catatonia, but then ultimately definitive treatment, which um, in, in her case ended up being removal of a tumor and then actually termination of a pregnancy that was likely the cause of the NNDA encephalitis. And then all the, the steroids and chemotherapy agents that were necessary to treat the underlying disorder, right? So the antipsychotics, first of all, were inappropriate for that disorder and then weren't necessary. There were better ways to care for her. So well, obviously we don't want to make that mistake. So what are some of the characteristics? I believe you have a Lancet article that we've linked below. Yeah. Um, I, I like this one to reference. There's a 2019 Lancet article, the Oxford Autoimmune Neurology Group. They, they did this systematic review. They looked at 1,100 patients with NMDA encephalitis. I, I like this one just to, to have a framework to say the, the median age was 27 years old. Um, they were mostly female, 80% female. Only, and, and this one stood out too, only about a third of them had a teratoma associated with it. That goes back to our biases of like, this classic case, if you think NMDA encephalitis, every med student is triggered there and says, oh, teratoma, right? Yeah. yeah, but only about a third of them had a teratoma found. And then the psych presentation, right? Two-thirds of them had behavioral disturbances, psychosis, about a third of them had catatonia. And for a lot of them, that was not just the first, it was the only presenting symptom for a significant period of, of their course. That's all you got to go off of. Yeah, the psych symptoms show up as much as a month before we can even test for uh, the antibodies, right? Right. Well, and, and, and we have this diagnostic structure of possible autoimmune encephalitis. And I, I think it's a, it's a good diagnostic framework, but you'll see the problems as we go through it, right? So what is that workup? Yeah, so the, the diagnosis of possible autoimmune encephalitis, and, and I think we have some links to the, 
the articles that explain in more detail what the probable and confirmatory tests are. But if we start with just possible autoimmune encephalitis, so you need a diagnosis to be made with all three of the following criteria. So one, the subacute onset, so rapid progression of less than three months uh, with working memory deficits, so short-term memory loss, altered mental status, or psychiatric symptoms. Going back to what we said before, the things that that worry you are subacute onset, right? It, if it's new. So that's one. Number two is it requires at least one of the following, and there's a list here, but it's new focal CNS findings. So um, uh, seizures not explained by a previous or known seizure disorder. And these, these two are where we're going to run into a problem. CSF pleocytosis, so white blood cells of more than five, uh, or an MRI feature suggestive of encephalitis. So one of the questions is, how do you encourage people to check the CSF and MRI? Both of those are, they're logistically difficult to get, which we'll unpack a little bit too. But it, if you have one of Particularly those- Particularly in a patient who's psychotic. Psychotic, right, right. And, and so at least one of those would be the second criteria. And then the third criteria is reasonable exclusion of an alternative cause. And again, this goes back to what we said. If, if there's this anchoring- or um, this um, availability heuristic at play here, oftentimes these patients have some psychiatric time course. I mean, they or their family members will explain, you know, uh, some stressor in their life. Oftentimes they're focused on that stressor. That stressor is the reason why these things happen. But we need to reasonably exclude first break schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or exacerbation of a, of a depressive, depressive disorder by recognizing that this set of symptoms in this timeline is not consistent with those diagnoses. So it takes those, those three criteria to make possible diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis. So what we did um, and for these cases that come into Loma Linda's emergency room is, is we've added on top of it, or maybe a step zero, is this index of suspicion model, right? Because there needs to be a way to encourage the workup, specifically um, lumbar puncture and MRI, and uh, EEG, that kind of breaks it into three groups, right? So you have this low index of suspicion pathway. This would be the demographic might fit, you know, a young um, female, but narratively it really fits something else, right? So the psychosis, yes, it's kind of that classic first break, but there has been a significant prodromal period, Um it, it fits that model of something like schizophrenia or they're floridly psychotic in the context of a manic episode. And yes, this might be the first episode, but you know, you get a strong description of a, a bipolar disorder, maybe um, significant major depressive episodes, hypomanic episodes, and now we're in the psychotic manic episode. So that low index of suspicion says, you know, it's, it's probably a psychiatric issue. So you still do some sort of workup. You do drug screen, pregnancy test, you do kind of your, your focused workup, obviously, the additional lab work or head imaging based off evaluation. But then you hold on in the back of your mind that we might need to update based off new information, right? We don't prematurely close. We don't anchor on to it. But we hold on to, you know, this might be a psychiatric issue. That second pathway, this moderate index of suspicion. So now you have somebody who fits the demographic and there's this atypical psych narrative or you have limited information um, or, or the, they might not fit the demographic, but they really present like an autoimmune encephalitis. 
In these cases, you might want to start with a more broad lab evaluation. You might want to do some non-invasive testing and EEG, you know, as depending on where you are, if it's available in the emergency room or even just admitting for an EEG, it's, you know, non-invasive. If you can get them to do MRI or imaging, that's non-invasive. Sitting in an MRI tube is uncomfortable, but the harms are relatively low. And and you update based off of your findings, right? As results come back, as soon as something comes back positive, you, you actually now might meet the criteria for possible autoimmune encephalitis. Now you're in a high index of suspicion group. But you update as you go. And then this third group, this high index of suspicion. So this is your patient that fits the, the demographic. There's no psych narrative. Um, there's significant symptoms like catatonia um, or tics. Um, and yet you have somebody with, with no previous psych history and sudden onset, um, the, the cases that we... Young female Caltech student in her master's degree that became psychotic and has an ovarian cyst. Right, right. Or, or you know, one of these ones we had recently where um, family said, you know, she was working up as recently as two weeks ago at her job and then was let go from her job. And, you know, it, it, somebody wants to say, oh, she's let go for all of these reasons, but it's kind of painfully obvious that she was psychotic and they let her go from work. Right. Um, and so this, it fits the, di- the the demographic and nothing else really makes sense. Um, in that group, you kind of want to push for aggressive multimodal evaluation. This is EEG, MRI with and without contrast, lumbar puncture, um, you know, MRI or uh, ultrasound of of uh, looking for for tumors on the ovary, and then if that you know if those come back negative, you might extend that search. You might do FDG PET. You really are aggressive, and to the point where you should involve maybe an ethics committee because oftentimes these patients are are so cognitively impaired they can't consent to some of these things. Um, recently, we had a severely catatonic patient that we're actually still working up for what we are concerned is NMDA encephalitis. Unfortunately, she was unable to consent for the MRI and was a little too unpredictable. So she had to be put under general anesthesia. And under general anesthesia, she had a lumbar puncture, an MRI, and an ultrasound done. And her parents consented to it, right? And and right from the beginning, it's rallying all the different people you can to help get those things done as quickly as possible because you have this high index of suspicion. So when we do this workup, I mean, ideally, you know, we want to have an illness that we can treat and we hopefully have caught it uh, close enough to the onset of that illness that there hasn't been significant harms from the delay. Yeah. And, we, we, you know, there's morbidity and mortality associated with these autoimmune encephalitis. And um, you are worried about that. But at the same time, if somebody comes in, you know, new onset psychosis and you're, you're between schizophrenia, that's going to end up being the, the diagnosis that needs lifelong treatment or, you know, an ovarian tumor that if taken out and treated appropriately can have resolution of symptoms. I mean, there's the the, the book and, and movie Brain on Fire was, right. was do, you know, documenting this exact situation where it was originally thought to be a psychiatric diagnosis found to be autoimmune encephalitis. It was treated. And then, yes, there's, you know, sequela from that. But I, ideally between the two, I, I think I would... I would pick the autoimmune encephalitis. We have, you know, good treatment algorithms and good outcomes if we get on it early. Um, psychiatric diagnoses are oftentimes lifelong things that that 
patients and families are signing up for. We have people working in behavioral health directly. We have people working in the emergency department. What do these providers and staff need to know? Well, I think one of the the arguments against, you know, doing these extensive workups is, oh, these are such rare conditions. I think, first of all, I'm reminded that, you know, whatever the the prevalence of uh, schizophrenia in the population or the emergency room, the prevalence of first break schizophrenia by definition is quite rare also. And then also when you, yes, the disorders are rare in the population. However, if you just narrow down, you know, by demographic and timeline, all of a sudden the chances of it being one of these um, neurologic disorders, it does increase enough to where it's worth working up. You know, we don't work up Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease for everybody. Um, But if, you know, if the, the picture fits, it is worth exploring, right? Um, so so what I, I think I would take away from this is just, you know, remember all the biases um, and we are justified, we're not justified by our outcomes, right? So um, just because it turned out to be negative workup, MRI, normal, lumbar puncture, normal, and over the course of the next weeks, months, years, it's pretty clearly a schizophrenia picture that doesn't justify or or argue against doing the workup initially. When you have such limited information, it's appropriate to, to do this workup. Um, and then have a systematic approach, right? So, so update your approach based off of the evidence, the, the resources you have available to you. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a static algorithm and you can reflect on, on these cases as new evidence comes out and as new techniques come out. But have an approach that is there before the patient walks in the door and then apply them to that systematic approach that you have for these types of cases. And I, that's why I like these index of suspicion pathways. You know, for the the moderate and high suspicion, you're going to do a workup, explore. And if if it's a low index of suspicion, that's okay to, to initially label it as a psychiatric disorder and watch and see how it evolves. Um, but just have a system that that you you have ready and then somebody comes in and you, you apply these these. Um, heuristics to them. And as an inpatient provider, I would I would add too, like sometimes you can do a little of both, right? If the if the workup is started and you're and in the interim, it's it it could be for some of these patients okay for them to go ahead and transfer to an inpatient psych unit while that workup is being completed, with the understanding that if some of it comes back positive, then we could transfer back and we can work together. So there is a way to collaborate uh, once the workup has started, but it's not inappropriate when these uh, cases present in these atypical manner, the the time sequence doesn't fit, we have no information at all, uh, and it is um, new, as you've stated, it's not inappropriate to ask for some of these tests. Yeah, and, and obviously the patients in this high index group Maybe it is appropriate to have them on a neurology or medicine service because oftentimes they have, you know, they're they're due for a seizure or autonomic instability. Um, they're very cognitively impaired, so having a one-on-one sitter available is is necessary. And the inpatient psychiatric milieu is not a place to have autonomic instability, seizure risk, and cognitive impairment. Yeah, and. It's always a reminder to to our um, internal medicine, neurology, um, and, and emergency department uh, 
providers that um, sometimes there's things we just cannot do in our psych hospitals and and it would be a disservice to the patient to move them there um, too early sometimes. What are some recommendations you have for negotiating with these providers? I think you have to start with humility. Um, epistemic humility, right? There's so much out there that we don't... I don't know everything. Yeah, yeah. And and even in this person in front of you, like you just might not have all the information necessary. So you start with that humility and then you have a genuine respect for the knowledge and experience of others. You know, when, when I... When I see somebody and I say we should get neurology involved, I remember all the times where neurology sees them and they say we should get psych involved. And that's okay to respect the other person's domain and knowledge base and recognize that you're working together. And then, you know, going back to the having that system in place before they walk into do- the door, have a have a collaborative process, um, preferably with all of these other specialties that are going to be involved. I mean, if you're going to have to do uh, general anesthesia, imaging, and you know lumbar puncture. Maybe this is something that you have discussed with interventional radiology, anesthesia. Like, hey, when these things come up, this is how we're going to want to process them. Um, and then just you know, updating that system for the future patient. So if you have a difficult case, reflect on it and say, okay, what would what could we have done better? And when you do that. The next case that comes in, you don't have to negotiate as much because you've reflected over time. Well, fantastic. I know your patients, our patients in our community are better off for having someone help uh, work through these uh, difficult cases in the medical center. Any final thoughts on these topics? I think I, I don't want to make it sound like uh, other specialties or other providers necessarily doing something wrong, I think it's worth just reminding ourselves that the biases and the system one thinking that we have, uh, they're products of our expertise and our training, and we should value those. Um, And the goal isn't necessarily to get rid of biases. We we don't want to get rid of them because that would make for a very draining day-to-day if you have to slowly think through the differential diagnosis from top to bottom for every Every single person that walks in. Um, But but you have this series of reflective processes, right? And sometimes across disciplines. And I I like to think that together they act as like a sieve that catches these odd cases. So even if I'm, you know, seeing some pattern here and jumping to a conclusion of some sort, somebody else says, ah, something's off here. Let me recheck this and vice versa. And together as a team, you know, you can catch them. And then I think just lastly, having this healthy doses of curiosity, um, you have an honor and a reverence for the opportunity we have to care for people that come in, right? And then the humility to say that I'm going to do the best I can with the resources and time that I have, and then I'm going to, you know, recover and move on to the next person. Um, if you do that over and over, you 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 catch the the rare ones, and you really do help some people. And and it's engaging, right? Um, I, if you feel burnt out about this, yeah, something something's off, right? These these should be. Um, it's part of the reason we went into medicine. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the the most serious and and and, and concerning illnesses are uh, from an intellectual standpoint are what excites us, and we want to treat these people and help them become better. Yeah, and no, obviously, we became psychiatrists to treat kind of the, the you know bread and butter cases that we see, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I I enjoy that, and then also the interest that comes from these odd cases, the one-offs, the you know, abnormal presentations, those should get you to not just slow down and think, but slow down, think, and get excited to, to do something good. 
Um, and just having that, that joy and curiosity in what you do day to day, I think would be the biggest takeaway from it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mark R. This has been a fascinating discussion of both anchoring bias and autoimmune encephalitis. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Insight. The information shared within this episode was peer-reviewed. And for more information, check the show notes. If you have additional questions, feedback, or to get in touch, please email us at empsych at vituity.com.